Brandy to come and preach for us tonight, and I'm excited about uh, hearing what the Lord has uh, in store for us through his message um, and through God's word. And uh, Brother Randy is a great friend of mine and a great friend of this church and uh, has been just a faithful brother uh, for a lot of years uh, here at this church, and uh, I'm looking forward to the message. So, Brother Randy, you come and preach for us. Thank Thank you, Pastor. Well, it's an honor and a privilege, of course, and uh, I am looking forward to that day when my faith will become sight. If you would quickly turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 9 through 16. Please forgive me. I'm going to stick close to my notes tonight to uh, meet some challenges that the pastors laid before me. But if someone were going to medical school with no intention of ever practicing medicine, we would say that that is a ridiculous waste of time and money. The purpose of a study in medicine is application. Application. The same is true of Scripture. I want to challenge you tonight to put our biblical learning, mine as well as yours, yours as well as mine, uh, into action as we study tonight. Our question tonight is what should we expect to see in a church family that is shaped by grace? Our challenge is to reason as to how sympathy, harmony, and humility result in a loving community shaped by the mercy of God. As a people who belong to Christ, we must carefully and thoughtfully consider the truth of the gospel of grace. In our current situation, we need to be motivated to living out grace's purpose in the lives of others and in the lives of ourselves. Then and only will the churches become welcome places for whom all Christ calls to follow him. In Romans chapter 12, let's look there in verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation, uh, love without pretense, or love that is demanding, not demanding something in return. Abhor or be horrified by that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent or intensely passionate in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant or going to your first option continuing instant in prayer distributing to the necessity of the saints given to hospitality bless them which persecute you and curse not rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep be of the same mind one toward another mind not high things but condescend to men of low estate be not wise in your own conceits. Let's bow our heads. Tell me, Father, Lord, tonight with uh, our Bibles open before us, help us to study your thoughts in such a way that we understand and then in understanding to believe and to obey and to live in the confines of all that you teach us by the Holy Spirit as you conceal me behind the cross tonight, Lord. For the church's sake and for this great nation, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, our question, what should we expect to see in a church family that is shaped by grace? Paul takes time to cover the basics and exhortations uh, here in Romans chapter 12 in the verses that we've read. We've already highlighted them, and I want us to look at three of these characteristics in verses 15 and 16, which is our text. And the characteristics to which uh, we will turn are first sympathy, then harmony, And lastly, humility. Christianity demands at every point careful and thoughtful consideration of the truth. I want to say that again. 
Christianity demands at every point careful, thoughtful consideration of the truth. So by introduction, we remind ourselves of the context uh, at that Rome church, that church there in Rome to which Paul wrote was, number one, diverse. It was multi-ethnic. It was primarily made up of people who came from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds, people whose lives were not only dissimilar to one another, but who in many ways were opposed to each other by the den of their ethnic backgrounds and the convictions that they actually shared. That's a, a, an important uh, place to start because we want to know the historical perspective here that Paul is speaking to. This finds Paul writing to this group uh, that are united that come from all different kinds of prior beliefs, uh, pre-existing ideas, and, but they have found the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout the book of Romans, he is pointing out the variations, places along the way where the unfolding story of God's plan and purpose is to have people of his own and to make this unmistakably clear that he wants people of his own. For example, in chapter 3, points out in verse 9, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. The reason he has to say this is because they were uh, some people saying uh, in pride, well, I'm sure there are dreadful sinners in the world, but I'm not one of them. Because you see, my background is this, or my background is that. And we still have those same folks doing the same thing today. I'm probably one of them, and you may be one of them. Also, these diverse individuals of the church in Rome were the beneficiaries of the same grace, even though they were dissimilar in their backgrounds. They were facing the same predicament as sinners, and they had found the same grace that Roman talk, that Paul talks about to the church in Rome in chapter 3 and verse 24, where Paul describes them as having been justified freely by his grace through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus. Moreover, Paul emphasizes in Rome chapter 6, verses 17 and 18 of the church at Rome, all together as one body, members of one body, through grace, they have been set free from the enslavement and sin, but, and instead, become servants or free slaves to righteousness. So Paul puts this diverse, multi-ethnic group of believers, Jews and Gentiles, from all over into remembrance that you were all in the same predicament, lost and in sin, and in need of a Savior, and now as one with and in Christ, you have been bought with a price and a wonderful experience of forgiveness of sins by the Messiah and by the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been set free from being under the bondage of sin and being slaves. Not so that you can do whatever you please, but in order that you might become slaves to righteousness, in order that you might be committed from your heart to doing the right thing under God. And it is to this diverse congregation that after he finishes chapter 11, Paul writes these great exhortations in the text that we use tonight. And in, but at the beginning of chapter 12 to set the context, in verse 1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye, I, you, present your bodies a living sacrifice. 
What the apostle makes clear to them immediately is that if you're going to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice, then that kind of radical living, and that's what we're called today, radical, and that's the reason that I use that word and what we believe, that kind of radical living will emerge from radical thinking. And it is imperative that they, being transformed by the renewing of their minds, some people tend to think that Christianity has, uh, uh, has no social change required or as a disengagement with the realm of rational thought. And that's why I say unto you, as best I can, you and I together are sensible people. Therefore, you should be examining the Bible yourselves and by yourselves because that's what Christianity is all about and that's where we find the answers to what uh, we ought to do the way that we ought to believe. Christianity demands at every point careful, thoughtful consideration of the truth. And you read it along with the early readers that are here in Rome, you'll be reminded of the fact that like them, if you are in Christ, you belong to Christ. And because you belong to Christ, you have no freedom to believe whatever you want. If you belong to Christ, you have no freedom but to believe exactly what Jesus Christ taught. Therefore, you can't come up with your own view of marriage. You can't come up with your own view of sexuality. You cannot come up uh, with your own view of finance. And you cannot come up with your own view of how to deal with the world's current culture. No. Your view, our view, is now the view of our Messiah, of our teacher, of our rabbi, the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes real Christianity so radical today because of what Jesus taught when he came into this world. What he taught his disciples, what his disciples went out into the world and what they taught and what we know of Jesus Christ today only through his word. And that is one reason, of course, that people turn away from Christianity in favor of current social denominations because so many contemporary religions offer you absolute latitude in every way with only a little dose of righteousness. You don't have to have any change in your lifestyle. You can pretty well make it whatever you like. Truth is, that may be religion, but folks, that's not Christianity. We are not to be content with simply knowing the truth. We need to be living the truth. The reason John wrote in his third letter, uh, in the same words as God would have said it, in verse 4 he says, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. And so that should be a, a challenge for us uh, this evening is as we look at truth and as we, we hear the truth and we listen to the truth and we read the truth with others and by ourselves that we put all effort we can into living it. In first century Rome and in America 2020, it's the same Bible, it's the same Jesus, it's the same God. Boiled down, the only difference is the culture of each epoch in which we live. The challenge to the believer in Rome then and the believer today, are we going to allow the current culture to impact Christ's church or are we going to impact the culture as Christ's church? How do we ensure 
It is an impact on the culture. Well, I believe it's summed up in a little poem I found. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. And men read what you write, distorted or true. So what is the gospel according to you? In answering our initial question, Paul has laid a foundation. What should we expect to see in a church family that is shaped by grace? And this includes the first century Roman church, and it includes Cornerstone today and any other church that wants to pull on the tag of Christianity. Verse number one we see in verse 15, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. We see sympathy. Reading the dictionary definition of sympathy, I needed a definition for the definition. I just live better by thinking I know what sympathy means. But uh, if we want to look at it uh, actually medically or, or philosophically, um, it, is, uh, it is a relationship between two organs or parts of the body, such as that uh, a disorder or a condition uh, induces uh, to one, it corresponds to that same condition or a reaction in the other, and sympathy is not simply observational. Sympathy actually is identification with and in the experience of the other person. Just like one organ has an effect on another organ. That's what sympathy really is. It's when we see somebody mourning, we see somebody uh, rejoicing. Sympathy joins in with that person. Sympathy is not simply observational. Sympathy actually is identification and in the experience of the other person. It is the opposite of apathy. Apathy says, uh, I couldn't care less. Sympathy says, I couldn't care more. So I say it again, sympathy is not simply observational. Sympathy actually is identification with and in the experience of the other person. In our verse tonight, verse 15 here, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Paul is explaining sympathy is not accomplished far off. It is going to see someone, sending a note to someone, making a call, or maybe just being a good listener rather than a good talker. The foundation for the understanding is the metaphor in chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, of being one body and each one of us a member of that body. He said this in a letter to the Corinthians. He said it in a letter to the Romans. He said it in a letter to the Ephesians and to the Colossians. We are in one body when we are in Jesus Christ, when we have accepted him as our Lord and Savior. So considering number one, rejoice with those that rejoice, or number two, weep with those that weep, which do you think is the hardest? I would suggest, from personal experience, number one presents a greater challenge. It's much harder, I find, to enter into the joys and successes of other people. There's a perversity about us and by human nature that is uh, resentful rather than encouraging at someone's success or the favor of God or a spiritual gift or whatever might be instead of it becoming an occasion to say, I bless God for this and I'm thankful for you. It actually becomes an occasion to envy. Christ's church will deal with none of that. 
because it gets to the rub when we recognize that there's a huge difference between not showing envy and not feeling envy. Behavioral modification can get us to the point of not showing it, which you can find in many books. But it's going to require spiritual transformation to get us to the point of not feeling envy. Now, there's a meta this is where the metaphor is crucial. What it means to be a member of the body of Christ, what it means to be identified with the people of God in a way that is both intrinsic and organic. We are members of the same body, and what we need to know, we need to find out, what we need to work toward is the point that we are all on the same team. The year was 1980. The Cold War with the Soviet Union is at its peak. For decades, people all over America had been building bomb shelters in their basements. The oil crisis, people were waiting hours in line just to fill up their car or their trucks with a tank full of gas. 52 Americans were held hostage in Iran. Americans were nervous, under tremendous stress, and worried for their future because of what was going on around the world just like today. But in Lake Placid, New York, a glimmer of hope was beginning, beginning to sparkle. The United States uh, hockey team made it to the medal round in the Olympics. Their opponent was a four-time gold medal winner, 1964, 1968, 1972, and then in our bicentennial, 1976, when our pastor was four years old. Zero. <laughs> I was born in 76. You were born in 76? Yeah. Oh, well, amen. Well, that year <laughs> of our bicentennial. That would be easy for me to remember. The game that day that happened was deemed the miracle on ice. It was called the best hockey game in the last hundred years. Mike Ruzioni fired a shot that would prove to be the game-winning goal. Every warm-blooded American at that final buzzer reveled in Ruzioni's success, and it brought pride and hope back into being an American that had been missing for a number of years. All Americans rejoiced at the success of one. There was no envy. Rejoicing in joy was what was experienced by all who lived under the American flag. And this is a contemporary picture, I believe, of the example of what Paul was relaying to the first century, century church. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Be happy for them. But to mourn with those that mourn seems to come naturally as humans as, at sadness seem to cry. The challenge in our culture is not to get so busy, not to be worried about so much other stuff that we dismiss, dismiss and don't take the time to share our precious commodity, which is time, the most precious commodity, with others, especially during moments of sadness and discomfort. And we need to... Uh, uh, in our culture, our culture says go, go, go. But we need to be managers of our time rather than just goers. Number two, harmony. Verse 16, be of the same mind one toward another. 
Live in harmony with one another. Once again, this has to do with thinking. The basis of this harmony is found in submitting uh, as an orchestra does to a conductor, uh, which is namely the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the music, which is namely the scriptures. This is to each member of the body as it relates to how we live our lives according uh, to the gospel and scriptural standards. If we misunderstand this, then we may be tempted to think that Paul is urging upon Christ Church in Rome some type of uniformity so that they would all uh, look the same, dress the same, act the same, all engage in the same stuff, doing all the same thing all the time. But no, that's not what he's saying, even for a moment. They were a diverse group, by background, by birth. They were diverse in relationships to the gifts that God had given them, and the very fact that their difference made something of the wonderful picture of one day what we'll find in heaven when we see the church called up together as we've sang about this evening. It won't be just Americans. It won't be just Baptists. There's going to be a diversity there that we're going to have to live with for eternity. And so as a church right now, we might as well start practicing and learn to get along with others, to love others, and to... Uh, Think of others before we think of ourselves. This is not a commandment to the idea that one might say, you don't need to think, you just need to listen. Or, um, don't worry about it, just do what you're told. It is a, co a commitment to listen, to think, to watch the conductor, Jesus Christ, playing the music, the scriptures, so the orchestra, we as believers in an assembly of church, can be in harmony performing like an orchestra does, performing in sync. And then thirdly, humility. Paul comes back again to what he mentioned before, this matter of humility. Humility. Verse 16 tells us, Mind not high things, but condescend or submit yourself, not be condescending, which I'm very well, I'm very good at, but to submit yourself, condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. The gospel according to Randy is don't be a snob. There is what he says, no snobbery. Snobbery exists like a horrible virus all over the place. And in two particular areas in the realm of mind, and in the realm of money or status. Mind and money, and we'll make this quick, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, what does knowledge do? Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth, or love builds up. Verse 2, and if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth what? He knoweth nothing. This is a warning here of intellectual snobbery. Never be the know-it-all in a room. It is not becoming, and it can be dangerous. Don't be so prepared to listen to yourself, you're unprepared to listen to anybody else. That's the wisdom of the world, is to only think you are the one that knows it all. 
Paul says it like this, or Solomon says it like this, actually, uh, in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from what? Depart from evil. Robin and I spent some time at the Creation Museum a couple of weeks ago and saw in contrast the evidence of the proud in their own eyes, the conceited that do not believe that God created the universe and the evil is because they put their education and theories ahead of scripture and they are unprepared to hear God and thus they are unprepared to meet God. Their eternal destination due to their education, due to the snobbery of what they know or what they think they know has given them eternal damnation, banishment because they're blinded by their secular education. As snobbery relates to money and the church that is marked by grace, I want to turn your attention to the book of James where he agrees with Paul's point in James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, you have to read this whole sentence and you have to take it into context. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. That's the important phrase in this verse, with respect of persons. Looking at somebody else and putting them up on a pedestal higher than this one over here. He goes on to explain, For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, in verse 3, And ye have respect for him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit under my footstool. Folks, that's just wrong. That's just wrong. It needs to be Obeying God's word without respect of persons. Brothers and sisters at Cornerstone, there is room at the the cross for all who repent. And that should be the, the beacon of every church. The only requirement is an ear sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And that is true of any church marked by grace. So in closing tonight, just before the 1980 miracle, USA hockey team went on the ice. The coach, Herb Brooks, gave this encouragement to the team. Great moments are born from great opportunity. Church, we are in this moment in world history, and we have a great opportunity to intensify our testimony for Christ, to recommit, and to rededicate. Tonight, we've looked and we've answered the question, what the church shaped by grace should look like as far as it comes from scripture but what will it look like as we move out into the future after this great virus that has uh, been seen all over the earth it is not about music it's not about leadership it's not to be completely taken care of by church staff it's not even about the preaching those ingredients are the small, straight pieces on the outside of a puzzle who really ensures that people, when they look at us, see a church that is shaped by grace. They look at all those pieces in the middle that make up the entire picture, that make the beautiful scene. 
God's people draw this, this, this scene. They create this picture through sympathy, harmony, and humility. We need to look out for each other, but we also need to look out for others who need the answer we hold in truth that has been given to each of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and no other. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. And men read what you write, distorted or true. So what is the gospel according to you? And allow me to bring up one oldie, but what I would call a goodie. Tis only one life, and it will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. Pastor.